Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks so much for listening to us today. I am one year older. Yes, it's Sarah's birthday today. Happy birthday, Sarah. Thank you. We had a very nice day. Uh, We had a legal amount of friends over to our backyard. I know that that makes it sound like we had illegal amounts of friends, the way that we're specifying legal, but it's just because the... uh, We've still got some health restrictions in place here in Alberta. Uh, All of our friends who came over today were vaccinated, one dose, but um, you can't have more than five people at an outdoor gathering. So there was Sarah and I and three of Sarah's friends uh, outside in our backyard having a good time um a good time which included mimosas and birthday pie yes so um we spent the afternoon with pie and cake and mimosas and now we're recording and now we're recording and we planned the day semi poorly because we do have food for dinner and it's ready to eat but it's waiting for us for to finish recording the first half of the show and we'll eat it with the movie. So we want to get through the first half, get to our food, uh, and hopefully we don't fall all over ourselves because we've been having mimosas, mimosas. all afternoon. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but Sarah, I think you've had a good day. Absolutely. I got spoiled for birthday gifts and just feeling warm and fuzzy inside. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. It was really important to have a nice birthday uh, this year. Not that we had a non-nice birthday last year. It was a good birthday last year. It was just very digital last yes. year. And it was nice to see people in person. Exactly. Uh, what are we seeing in person tonight, Ben? <laughs> uh, tonight, Sarah, we are watching Roger Corman's film, The Undead, mm. from 1957. And uh, I I showed you the poster for this movie. Yeah, Uh, it looks cool. Yeah, this movie has quite a poster. I mean, you should always check out the posters for the movies we watch on Scream Scene, usually because there's like a good chance they're cooler than the movie itself, (laughs) especially for like AIP Mm -hmm. movies. But like Roger Corman as well. He's a master of marketing. Yeah. So this poster, though, is like. very good very good there's like a skeleton man there's like a babe in a nighty like it's got everything you want (laughs) skeletons and babes yeah um that doesn't give me a hint as to what this movie is about is it about zombies fair uh no so we're back with roger corman here as mentioned this is a movie that took a bit of a roundabout way to get produced um so it's it's a bit of a saga his most recently released movie before this was a crime drama called rock all night um but the undead was actually shot before that right uh it came out after however so the story of the undead begins in early 1956 in may walter mirsch of allied artists 
invited Roger Corman over from AIP to produce a reincarnation movie inspired by the success of the Bridie Murphy story. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this on the show before, but Sarah, can you give a quick recap on Bridie Murphy sure. for our listeners? For the full story of Bridie Murphy, you can listen to our other episode on reincarnation, the she-creature, episode 193. Bridie Murphy is the person that Virginia Ty, an American woman, claimed to be. She claimed to be Bridie Murphy in a past life, and this realization came out under hypnosis by amateur hypnotist Maury Bernstein. He was trying to do hypnotic regression, so, you know, you're who you are right now in the case of Virginia Ty, you're an American housewife. Let me take you back to when you were in college. Okay, take you back to when you were a child. And Bernstein wanted to go a step further into your past life. And he discovered he was speaking to Bridie Murphy. Now, Ty claims, as Murphy, um, that she was born in 1798 in Cork, Ireland, how she was married at 17 to barrister Sion Brian McCarthy, um, and that she died of a fall in 1864. She would describe her tombstone, seeing her own funeral, that sort of thing, and then somehow was reincarnated into Virginia Ty in America. There were a series of articles about Bridie Murphy in 1954 in the Denver Post by William J. Barker, but the explosion into pop culture seems to really hit the fan, uh, really occurred in 1956 when Bernstein published his book, The Search for Bridie Murphy. Now, this book was published before biographical details were checked about was Bridie Murphy real? Mm. Uh, everyone was considering this like, oh, yeah, this is true. Absolutely. People were throwing come as you were parties um, about like, what were you in a past life? Yeah, it really like there was like a little mini reincarnation craze Absolutely. in the U.S. over this. Once the book was published and became a huge hit, reporters were like, hmm, let's go to Ireland and just fact check some of this stuff. They found no record of the birth, death, or life of Bridie Murphy. And notice how he said Sion Brian McCarthy hmm. was her husband. So in Ireland, the name S-E-A-N is pronounced Sean. Yeah. But Ty consistently called him Sion. As like as if you had like only seen it, it rather yeah. than heard the name pronounced. Yeah, didn't know how to pronounce the Irish spelling of Sean. So that's like, okay, she was clearly either making stuff up, um, either maliciously or unintentionally. However, there were facts that were confirmed to be true. Some of her descriptions of the town, some of the descriptions of the coastline, despite having never been to Ireland. So it's kind of like, do you believe in Bridie Murphy? <laughs> You know, kind of a, a question up for grabs. But regardless of whether it's true or not, the fact remains that it inspired a lot of this like reincarnation themes into pop culture. Yeah. The thing about it is like, it's one of those like you can't prove a negative kind of things. Yeah. Where like, there's no proof that Bridie Murphy ever existed. 
but there's no proof that she didn't not exist. Yeah. Kind of thing. You can't prove that something didn't exist, right? Like, yeah. yeah. And in the case of the she creature, which was released in 1956, so right at the height of all this craze, um, the idea was the hypnotist bringing our uh, lady back even further to like prehistoric times as a a lobster creature with tits and a wig. Yeah. You know? (laughs) So um, with this craze sweeping pop culture, uh, obviously Hollywood was going to come knocking. Yeah. And so there was a big budget, like a picture, the search for Bridie Murphy movie being produced over at Paramount Pictures starring Teresa Wright in the lead role. The plan here with Walter Mirsch and Roger Corman working together was to produce a similar picture faster and cheaper and have it out in theaters before the Bridie Murphy movie, which was scheduled for October of 1956. So this is like 100%, this is like the Asylum mockbuster transmorphers yeah deal here where we're trying to get our our thing out first so corman leaves aip to come over to allied artists to work on this movie for walter mersh uh he goes to his now regular writer charles griffith asking for a script along these lines you know give me a bridey murphy story kind of movie uh the picture was to be called the trance of diana love Griffith wrote a script that he was really excited about, about a woman who goes into a trance and awakens in one of her past lives where she has been accused of witchcraft and meets Satan. Whoa, I love it. He wrote some very elaborate scenes for the devil and distinguished the scenes set in the Middle Ages by writing them in iambic pentameter. Oh, that's neat. Which if you don't know, that's a... um, Like Shakespeare. Yeah, it's it's a poetic rhythm. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the lines all have to like rhyme or whatever, but it's just a very common poetic rhythm in English. So yeah, a lot of Shakespeare plays are written in iambic pentameter. So Corman got really excited about this script as well, like just thought this was like the coolest thing, um, as did the cast he assembled, which included actress Pamela Duncan in the lead role, actor Richard Garland, the estranged husband of Corman favorite Beverly Garland, and actor Mel Wells, a highly educated psychologist who left his career to become a stage actor and then transitioned to film. <laughs> uh, so this is right up his alley, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's probably today best known as playing Mushnik in the original version of Little Shop of Horrors that Roger Corman directed. However, Corman was so excited about the script that he may have shown it to too many people because um, allied artists sort of balked at the iambic pentameter when comments started coming in from people who had read the script that, like, they couldn't understand it. Because it's hard to read. It's best when it's performed. Exactly. Um, But people couldn't understand the script. Allied artists got cold feet and they withdrew funding from the project. To fulfill his contract with Allied Artists, however, uh, Corman and Griffith delivered the Attack of the Crab Monsters Not of This Earth double feature, which was released by Allied Artists. And Crab Monsters actually featured Duncan, Garland, and Wells in the cast in order to keep them employed until the Trance of Diana Love could be produced. Sort of keep them around, keep them on a short leash. 
In July of 1956, Corman announced he would be financing the film himself, though the scenes in the past had been rewritten to remove the iambic pentameter, which Griffith felt ended up ruining the script. I don't know if that would ruin the script, but it is like, oh, that was such a unique aspect. Right. However, by July of 1956, AIP had already released their reincarnation movie, The She-Creature, Corman had kind of been beaten to the punch Mm. in the task of beating Paramount to the punch. Mm -hmm. And so Corman felt that the script for The Trance of Diana Love needed a rewrite in order to give it a fresh spin, some additional element that was more than just, you know, lady gets put into trance. So he added the idea that uh, the lead character's psychologist doesn't just put her into a trance, but also travels back in time with her. Uh, Former model and B-movie actress Allison Hayes, who we last saw in Zombies of Mora Tau, she plays the real witch for whose crimes the protagonist is being blamed for. Billy Barty appears as one of Satan's imps. Uh, Barty was a famous actor with dwarfism who appeared in hundreds of roles and was a major activist for people with dwarfism. Uh, He appeared in films such as Gold Diggers of 1933, A Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, the animated version of Lord of the Rings. He was not one of the voice actors, but he was a rotoscope model for mm-hmm. Samwise Gamgee. Sam! Oh, yay! Uh, he also appears in Legend, Rumpelstiltskin, Masters of the Universe, and Willow. Also appearing in this film, there's Bruno Vesoda from Dementia, and Corman regular Dick Miller appears as a leper. So the movie being like a period movie set in the Middle Ages was a little bit different for Corman. Um, So instead of shooting like, you know, on location in Bronson Canyon or around like a friend's Malibu beach house or whatever, which has kind of been his modus operandi, um, he needed a soundstage for this one. So what they did was they rented a supermarket and just had it like emptied and then rented a fog machine (laughs) and 15 trees and so they put a bunch of trees and then like fogged up the whole place with the fog machine uh, to the point where like the cast and crew were often like coughing (laughs) on the fog Um, but they rented out this supermarket and that's what they used Um, Corman (laughs) didn't like having to pay for all these rentals that wasn't usually his style Um, And though the film only cost $70,000 and was shot in six days, Corman grew frustrated with anything on set that caused any kind of delay, like a missing Mm -hmm. script, someone flubbing a line. He just like was flying off the handle if anything happened. I just imagine, you know, a regular shopper coming to this this grocery. Like, you know, we go to Mm co-op every Saturday. And if we came... And it's like, sorry, we're closed. And you looked in, it's just like fog. <laughs> I'd be like, for what? <laughs> what are you closed? Are you fumigating the place? Ultimately, uh, by the time the film finished shooting and Corman had convinced AIP to pick up the film to distribute it, Paramount's The Search for Bridie Murphy was in theaters. So Corman retitled the movie The Undead, And then to create some distance between it and Bridie Murphy, AIP delayed the film's release until March 15th of 1957, where they released it on a double feature with Voodoo Woman, which ironically reuses the she-creature costume. Oh. 
The Undead actually got good reviews at the time. Oh. But Corman was very disappointed with its financial results. Okay. Um, with its box office take. Um, after all the like work put into it and the delays and the script rewrites and all this trouble, like Corman decided like this isn't worth the effort. Like either make the movie in a week and get it out the next week and make money or like it's not worth the trouble. So um, he actually wouldn't make another horror picture until 1959. Oh, Um, obviously you would keep making movies, monster movies, sci-fi movies, Westerns, noirs, adventure films. Um, He would also produce a horror movie in 1958. Um, but he wouldn't direct one himself until 59. So what was the box office for The Undead? I don't have numbers, oh. unfortunately. Okay. I just know that it was sort of disappointing. So do you think that that means that it didn't make its money back? Um. Well, it was on a double feature with Voodoo Woman, so it might... Because it... Corman's been seeing a lot of success with these, like making double or triple their box office back. Yeah. So if he was just disappointed i wonder if it just made its money back yeah if it if it didn't like really explode even though the undead got good reviews voodoo woman when it was released was considered one of the worst movies ever made (laughs) um so i think if it underperformed it probably underperformed in the way that like it wasn't this huge Mm -hmm. return on investment that he was used to seeing but i don't know for sure i just know he was disappointed with the results We're going to be watching the movie on Tubi, which is a free streaming service. Um, So you can watch along with us fairly easily. Well, folks, head on over to Tubi. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss The Undead from 1957, directed by Roger Corman. See you on the other side, everybody. to scream scene everybody we just finished watching the undead from 1957 directed by roger corman sarah what did you think of this movie not his best not his strongest um oh what's that face ben please continue um i found parts of it very interesting and Many other parts, not interesting. Why don't you tell me about your face? So I think that this is without a doubt the best Roger Corman movie we've seen so far. Interesting. Mm-hmm. For some reason, the classic hom- hallmarks of B-movies, of this place to that place to this place to that place, seemed really apparent in this movie. Yeah. And... Uh, I mean, we can get into this in the discussion and after the plot summary so people know what the fuck I'm talking about. But uh, I there was just so much talking in this movie. <laughs> it was just there was just so much talking. And because they're all trying to speak in like these and those because it's the Middle Ages, I would sometimes have to do like intellectual work to translate to myself what they're saying. Hmm. And it was just like... A little bit too much work than I was expecting, I guess. I don't know. I'm very interested to hear 
why you think this is the best Corman movie. Yeah, we can we can certainly get into that. I didn't have the same problem with like the language. I really appreciated. Yeah, but you're smarter than me, so. Well, that's that's. I was gonna say I'm a huge fucking nerd. <laughs> um, was how I was gonna put that. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> so let's talk about the story of this movie, which has its highs and lows. <laughs> yes, I did enjoy when the movie starts. It's Satan himself introducing mm-hmm. us to this story, um, saying like, hey, be careful. You don't want me to turn my sights on you and meddle in your affairs. Right. Ha 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 ha. Yeah. And then we begin with the story where Dr. Quintus Ratcliffe approaches a sex worker who calls herself Diana Love, and he hires her for a two-day hypnosis experiment for $500. They head to Dr. Ollinger and his, like, office, I guess, um, to make him be, like, the witness to this experiment and to monitor Diana's health. Now, Ollinger is Quintus's mentor, or rather ex-mentor. Ollinger is like, all my failed students come back to me to try to prove me wrong. (laughs) Um, Quintus has just returned from Tibet, slash Nepal, or Nepal, as he says it. He says both. They are neighboring countries. They are not the same area. Mm. Good job, movie. Anyways, he explains that during his travels in the Far East, he saw how hypnosis could be used to access past lives and even perhaps transport a second person into that life. Now... Ollinger is like, this is crazy. I don't want to do this. Um, But Quintus kind of backs him into a corner like, I'm going to do this anyways. And you probably want to make sure this girl's safe. So they they have this conversation like about how like this process could be potentially fatal and how like Quintus is like, yeah, and I'm just going to do it. So if you don't want like this girl to die, uh, you know, then you're going to have to do it with me. And Ollinger's like, well, I don't want to be a murderer. Uh, you know, and all this stuff. And they're talking about this. And like Diana loves just like in the room with them, like kind of absentmindedly, like looking at stuff around the room and examining things as they're talking about potentially killing her. She is. Uh, she does steal Quintus's um, wallet. Yeah. When like they're off talking. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's there's also like a lot of like really uncomfortable sexual politics, like r- throughout this whole movie. Um, but certainly like right up front mm-hmm. where like Ollinger's like, so why did you like hire a sex worker to do your, uh, your, your hypnosis experiment, my dude? Like, why not put an ad out in the paper or something? And he was like, oh, well, because you see these debase women who are at the bottom of the social hierarchy are the most easily susceptible to suggestion they have the weakest wills so it'll be the easiest to do this experiment with and like he he doesn't quite when like the idea that she might die from it like he doesn't quite go so far as to be like and no one will miss her if she's gone but like it's it's definitely a big feeling that like quintus does not give a fuck about his subject in this experiment it's a little uncomfortable yeah um at one point she says that she's not sure about this experiment and he says well i paid you 500 dollars, so 
Yeah. And it's like, there's a whole lot of wrong in all of this. Yeah. So as I kind of gave in the context setting of like regressive hypnosis, you know, you go back to when you were a teen, then you're in the womb. And Diana, you know, goes that step further. Um, She first begins speaking in French. And Quintus is like, ah, so you were a French aristocrat in a past life. Interesting. Oh, how your line has fallen now. And ghosts, ghosts, ghosts. She eventually travels back to the Middle Ages, where her ancestor, Helene, is being held at the Tower of Death uh, because she has been accused as a witch. She is not a witch, but no one's listening to her because it's the Middle Ages. The time period that we're in is like capital TMA, the Middle Ages. It is not any more specific than that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's During the reign, the sixth year of the reign of King Mark, I the, think she says. Yeah, there is no King Mark. Right. The only King Mark is the semi-fictitious, semi-historical, semi-legendary uh, Mark of Cornwall from the Tristan and Isolde legend. And if it's the second year of King Mark, we're somewhere in like the sixth century in in Cornwall, which we are not. Uh, the clothing everyone's wearing is much more uh, like 1300s maybe. Mm-hmm. But then everyone, of course, is speaking in the sort of faux Elizabethan dialect where it's it's I mean, they're, it's like Shakespeare, but without the iambic pentameter yeah and the idea of like um witchcraft in the style that we're seeing it here and the kind of like uh witch trials and persecutions are very much more like a 1300s thing so we're not really in a specific historical setting we are in the middle ages Mm -hmm. so now as diana has i don't want to say traveled back in time but like traveled up her genealogy (laughs) i guess um she sees Helene tied up and begins to like, no, you need to escape. You're going to die at dawn. Oh no. Like, here's how you can escape. And Helene hears this as like a voice in her head saying that, you know, I'm you, you're me, and we we need to get out and escape. So she follows those instructions and manages to escape. I think it's interesting that, so later in the movie, the suggestion is raised that in the normal timeline we're gonna get into that later but uh helene you know just was in this tower till dawn died at dawn that was the story and by regressing back into her past lives and telling helene (laughs) with a message from the future to escape you know uh diana love has changed destiny and what i think is interesting about this is the way that diana tells her to escape because there's a gross jailer who's like, oh, it's your last night on Earth, so you you should have sex with me to have a fun time before we kill you in the morning. And she's like, no, I'm a medieval, you know, noblewoman, so I'm all chaste and pure. I would never. And Diana Love is like, nah, girl, like, just 
pretend. pretend. You can pretend to to want to make out with him, and then you can like bash him over the head with something. And she's like, "Oh no, I couldn't pretend. That would be lying." And Dazzlove's like, "Bitch, like fucking just do it." And I do think it's interesting that like what saves Helene is like the the valuable knowledge from the future that she gets from Diana that saves her is the knowledge that like you can use your feminine wiles to lie to people yeah to manipulate yeah so helene is on the run and you know she has said i'm not a witch we see that the actual witch is livia played by a very sexy ms hayes Mm -hmm. and um and the, the movie wants you to think she's sexy her outfit does not match the time period in any case she is she is the Middle Ages' bustiest witch. <laughs> Livia basically bewitched this gravedigger dude and made him think that it was Helene who did it. Because Livia wants to get with Helene's boyfriend, Pendragon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we go back and forth around um, Helene being on the run, getting help from characters including, like that gravedigger himself um we meet someone named meg Maud, who is really interesting um she is kind of a crone figure and eventually the story comes to a head when it's the witch's sabbath that happens to be the like it's all on the same day mm. the witch's sabbath is tonight and that's why helene was to be executed the following morning and it all comes to a head when pendragon is kind of manipulated by livia He believes that Helene has been recaptured and he agrees to offer his soul to Satan if Helene can be freed. And Livia's like, yes, do this, because then you'll have to be with me forever. And Satan actually appears, same looking dude as like the person who introduced us to this story. Um, And he's like, yeah, sign my book. I'll free Helene for you. Satan looks like Mirror Universe Spock with a bicocket and a pitchfork. Yeah. It looks like a fake pitchfork. I mean, yes, it is definitely a fake pitchfork. But I mean, it's not like, it's not like a trident. Like, it just, it looks like a bad prop. During this whole time as well, we've been flashing back and forth between the Middle Ages and contemporary times with Quintus and Olinger, you know, commenting on how the experiment is going and they've noticed that you know diana in the real world well in contemporary times um keeps like screaming out when she's afraid slash when helene is afraid and at one point actually has a bruise on her arm from an injury that helene sustained yeah and it's like as if diana is experiencing these past events through like the eyes of helene in like real time in contemporary times now they do learn that diana helped helene escape and thus has broken the prime temporal directive Mm. uh and has mucked up history and this is when quintus shares like well maybe i can go back uh to helene's time through diana's brain waves to explain to helene the situation she's in that she must die in order for diana and the subsequent lives to actually happen but if helene lives diana and all of those other lives are lost Mm -hmm. no real explanation as to why like like why if she dies later 
those subsequent lives don't I, happen. I think it's, I mean, they don't explain it, but I think the idea is that if this is reincarnation, right? The idea is that like you die and then your soul passes into some other life, right? So if you were to die, you know, in the timeline where Helene gets executed, she dies and then like a baby is born the next day that Helene's soul is in. Uh, so it wouldn't line up with all yeah, of those other babies. Exactly, because she's dying at a different time. Okay. So Quintus travels <laughs> through these brainwaves and manages to arrive Terminator style in the sense that he is naked. Yeah. <laughs> it's just really funny and like I was not expecting that. No. Um, he like knocks out a knight and takes his armor <laughs> and he's going through. He knows he needs to find Meg Maud because that's where Elaine is, but he can't seem to find his way. But he does hear, ah, it's the witch's Sabbath. I will go see if she's there. And that's when he sees Pendragon literally just about to write his name in the book of the devil. Mm -hmm. And so he goes up to Pendragon and persuades him not to sign. And Satan's like, what the fuck, Quintus? And yeah. Quintus is like, you don't know who I am. And Satan's like, yeah, I do. You've just traveled back in time. This is I know everything. I'm Satan. This is one of my favorite moments in the movie is like Satan just casually being like, hey, what up, Quintus? Like, <laughs> I see that you finally managed to be a completely fucked up person. Good job. And yeah, and it's just really funny that like satan is omniscient so he knows who quintus in the future is yeah so quintus gets pendragon to not sell his soul uh they get to make mod and he explains everything to make mod that i'm from the future and helene has to make this decision and then we meet up with helene and make mod explains the situation to helene and Helene's like, I, fuck, I, I don't want, know what to do. This is a huge decision. Like, what, what am I supposed to do? And everyone who's in the scene, from Pendragon, Quintus, Livia is there, Megmod, the gravekeeper, um, and I think Satan's there as well. Yeah. Everyone is, like, shouting what they think. Um, like, live, die, die, live, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And she's like, shut up. And so she asks Quintus to use his hypnosis in order for Helene to talk to her subsequent lives because they are the ones who will be impacted. And so he does this and we hear a voiceover of like, I'm a dancer, let me live. Um, I'm Diana, let me live. I'm a mother, let me live. And Helene is like, okay, I know what I have to do. And so she rushes off to go get executed. She arrives at the Tower of Death just in time for her execution Pendragon is chasing after her because they're in love and he's like, no, I want you to live. I, I want us to be together. But he doesn't get there in time. Um, and Helene is beheaded, um, much to Pendragon's sorrow. Um, and that's when Diana awakens um, kind of on her own. Uh, no one brings her out of the hypnosis. And she's like, yeah, I, I was fully aware of what Helene was doing this whole time. And I'm going to turn my life around thanks to her sacrifice. Yeah. I, through her purity. Yeah. The, my my heart has been uh, cleansed. Yeah. Oy. It's the idea of like, because she's lived a day through Helene, the pure, innocent, medieval noblewoman. She's like, oh. I, I can I can be more than what I was and, and so on, mm -hmm. which 
again, is the other part of this movie that's sort of some real, like, cringe sexual politics, right? That, like, this character needs to be redeemed. Yeah, I was kind of chalking that up to the code a bit, like the particular language that they were using. For sure. I also think that a part of that, too, is because this is all stuff that happens in the past, like, it needs to have some sort of impact on, like, Diana's life in the present for the story to have meaning. Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, impact on the present, <laughs> so, you know, Diana's here, and um, Ollinger is like, yeah, but I, I'm i glad you're you're safe and that you've arrived back, Diana, but this has been a full horror show for me. I'm fully horrified. And he looks over to Quintus's chair where his clothes are just sitting empty. Like, he was, he just, like... I don't know. He was sitting there and then like shrunk out of them. Yeah, like a Jedi. <laughs> and then we cut to Quintus back in the Middle Ages going like, good, I'm glad she made that decision. And Satan looks at him and is like, yes, but with Helene dead, there's no brainwaves for you to travel on back to your contemporary time. So you are stuck here. <laughs> And uh, that's that's the end. <laughs> yeah. So I think it might be fair to say that this is a movie, at least in my opinion, that has a really good story, mm-hmm. but whose plot isn't like doesn't make sense and like has yeah. problems. Yeah, it's a little too convoluted. I, I just felt like there were way too many characters going on in the Middle Ages section. Um, and just too many like back and forths between locations where I was getting confused. Like, why are we here again? I didn't really feel that I really enjoyed all the middle ages characters, but I think one thing that really helped me watching this movie was realizing, you know, when the iambic pentameter I knew wasn't going to be there, but they went back in time and everyone was still talking in an Elizabethan dialect. Like we're watching a Robert Eggers movie and all the like speech is going to be authentic to the period i realized that i should be looking at this through the lens of like a shakespearean drama Mm -hmm. like the movie feels like a play yeah and what it actually does a really good job of in my opinion is evoking a medieval morality play one of those like simplistic entertainments of the time that were meant to like show you proper virtues and things where like satan might be a character like pierce plowman kind of stuff right um i don't know who that is you have an english degree (laughs) that 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 was several years ago ben um but yes i i agree with the morality play and and thing and the thing that made that really work is the cast clearly got into that idea Like, they're playing it like they know that they're in a medieval morality play. They're Mm -hmm. not trying to play this like it's a contemporary movie. So the characterizations are not, like, psychologically modern. Um, And they're very, like, authentic to the period. Like, the gravedigger Smolkin, um, there's a innkeeper who gets beheaded um, because they need a severed head to uh kick off the witch's sabbath um there's all kinds of really interesting characters and i know you say you thought there was like too many of them but i thought they were all really interesting and part of it might have been yes we're going sort of back and forth between a few different 
locations as Helene's on the run in the first part of the movie. And absolutely, that's a thing that makes it feel like a B-movie, that we're going from like Meg Maud's cottage to the inn to the Tower of Death to like Smolkin's cemetery and kind of back and forth in a variety of patterns of which characters are where. Um, (laughs) Which characters? Right. But all of the characters for me are really interesting and all the locations are really interesting because we're in this like medieval setting and because Corman uses the fact that his soundstage is pumped full of fog to make everything feel very like atmospheric. Yeah, the fog does the heavy lifting for the atmosphere. Absolutely. And the characters are really like well drawn and interesting in the fact that they feel like authentic medieval characters Mm -hmm. from the innkeeper to Smolkin to Meg Maud to Livia, like all the way. And they're all really interesting. Like there's the fact that this is a movie and I think you can tell that this is a movie for adults instead of for kids because the bad witch Livia is hot and the good witch Meg Maud is ugly. Mm -hmm. Like Meg Maud looks like Yeah, she looks like a stereotype witch, but turns out she's one of the good guys, um, which is interesting. Uh, Livia has an imp played by Billy Barty who like follows her around and does her bidding, who's kind of weird and interesting and fun. Smolkin, the gravedigger who's been bewitched, um, he is mad and he mostly talks in... Like riddles and Mother Goose rhymes. Right, but Mother Goose rhymes that have been, like, altered to be appropriate for a cemetery. Like, you know, instead of Hickory Dickory Dock, the mouse ran up the clock, it's Hickory Dickory Horse, I'm Dragging Me a Corpse, or something like that. Yeah. Which are all, like, really weird and entertaining. Um, The plot doesn't make sense because the time paradox elements are, are very nonsense. But they do lend themselves to some good existential drama. Yeah, I think this was a unique premise um, because instead of like the horror sci-fi of like, say, crab monsters, it's the sci-fi of time travel. Mm -hmm. And especially with the ending, it felt very like Twilight Zone. Yes. Um, But I do think that the best part of the movie and really where the whole theme shines is Helene's choice scenes like when Mm -hmm. she's having to make the decision and then when she does go forward with the execution oh yeah absolutely the movie's got a really strong ending the fact that she does submit herself to be killed is really strong um and yeah the horror here is mostly coming from the idea of like like existential yeah it's it's you know do you give up your life for these lives that you don't know um that haven't happened yet And like sort of this idea of like rewriting your history because like Quintus fucks up and makes it so that like he doesn't exist in present times. Mm -hmm. Now the, so the time travel stuff doesn't really make any fucking sense at all. Right. (laughs) Like if I'm hypnotizing you and I'm making you regress so that you'll experience the memories of a past life, the idea that you could then, change literal history because you're like remembering something like yes she's under hypnosis but like hypnosis just would mean that like she's remembering these past life memories Mm -hmm. if i remember 
some really embarrassing thing that I did when I was in like eighth grade. And then I just think really hard at myself like, no, don't say that embarrassing thing. I'm not going to change history <laughs> so that it never happened. Like, man, that would be nice. Yeah. Um, and then the idea that Quintus can travel back in time by being hypnotized in such a way that his brainwave patterns match Diana's brainwave patterns is that's some real wild nonsense. Um, and, you know, then the fact that the idea that, well, because the connection's been severed, he can't come back. So then it's like, it's not just that he's like in a coma forever in contemporary times because he never comes out of the trance. No, he's just gone. gone. Speaking of which, like he leaves his clothes behind. But he when, brings his watch. Right, right. Yes. When he goes back in time, he does arrive naked except for his wristwatch. First. Yeah, which he uses to convince Livia at one point that he is also a witch because he can like change time. Yes. Um, <laughs> which is okay, my dude. So, also fucking with like the temporal t- prime directive. Right. So... I think if you're going to enjoy this movie, like since actual witches and Satan are part of the plot, it's perhaps better to view what happens to Diana and Quintus through the lens of magic rather than science. And to just keep in mind that like, yeah, he learned all of this stuff in Nepal. So it's, it's all (laughs) magic. Which I choose to believe is like a fictional place and not actually Nepal. Right. Once you get into the idea of treating this like it's a medieval morality play and you realize that like all of the characters sort of represent different elements the way that characters in morality plays represent different things with, you know, Livia is lust and, you know, Pendragon is uh, courtly love and Smolkin is madness and, and you know, uh, Megmod's the crone and, and these sorts of things. I think you can start to get into the story more. And if you can sort of take the sci-fi justification for the premise and hand wave it away as magic, I think that really helps Mm -hmm. as well so that you're not sitting there thinking like, wait, this doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah. Um, You just have to kind of go with it. You have to buy into the premise. And I think, you know, if you can buy into Robert Eggers' The Witch. The Witch. The Witch. um, This feels similar Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think this feels really similar to in a weird way um, is the Netflix streaming series, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Sure. Not only because we literally have like witches' Sabbaths and people having to sign their name in the Book of the Devil and like Satan being there and stuff, but like Livia's character is like very, very reminiscent of the Madam Satan character, Lilith, on yeah. that show in the sense of being like, I'm a sexy va-va-voom pinup witch. Like <laughs> I have cheekbones that can cut steel <laughs> and breasts that can be used as torpedoes. Jesus. Um yeah, I actually was thinking about chilling adventures as well because um spoilers uh eventually that coven starts to worship Hecate. And she is kind of a figure that embodies that handmaiden whore crone uh, trifecta. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that trifecta with this movie. Yeah. Because I thought it was really interesting that out of 
anything that they could have had these subsequent lives say to Helene, one of them is, I'm a mother. Yeah. And that's one of the things that kind of seals the deal for Helene. And in a really neat way, even though she's kind of like the pure handmaiden, she becomes a mother to all of these subsequent lives because she decides whether they live. Yeah. And I mean... When I first heard the mother thing, I was mostly just thinking they were going for like some very cheap pathos the same way that like, you know, it's it's when men on news shows talk about women. It's like, oh, well, I have a mother or a sister or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think also because like Meg Maud is such like capital C crone mm-hmm. of a figure, um, like she has like a fake nose, a fake elongated chin. It's basically Meg Maud who is keeping Helene safe from Livia. Right. Who's the whore. Yeah. Right. And uh, in like contemporary times, Diana as a sex worker is the whore figure who mm-hmm. transforms into a handmaiden figure, both in the sense of the regression hypnosis and then her transformation by the end. Yes. Um, so that, that was all just things I was thinking about. The reason I think this is the best Roger Corman movie we've seen so far um, it's really ambitious mm-hmm. compared to stuff that he's done in the past. Like, even if we are doing a lot of B-movie um, time padding by going back and forth between a few different locations, those locations are all helping us learn more about the characters. Yes, you kind of brought up that, like, plot points get reiterated a lot and re-explained, although I think that's semi-fair given that it's a little complicated. And it's 1957 and like time paradox movies aren't just like a thing everyone knows. Fair. Like there've only been a few time travel movies up to this point. Very few of them have been sci-fi based. A lot of them have been like, I hit my head and I woke up in King Arthur's court <laughs> um, kind of stuff. Not really dealing with time paradoxes so much as like, movies where a character goes into the future so we can see how great the year 1980 is going to be and stuff like that. You know, the first movie adaptation of The Time Machine is until 1960. Mm -hmm. And so some of these ideas of, like, time paradox, causality loops and things are, are, you know, familiar already to sci-fi fans, but not familiar to, like, regular audiences. The movie's fairly ambitious. It's very intelligent, you know, to have a script that's doing time travel stuff and witch persecution stuff and Satan stuff and to have like these medieval uh, nursery rhymes and everyone speaking in an Elizabethan dialect. And they're doing it right, by the way. Um, a lot of faux old timey language, like how Thor talks in like Marvel comics and stuff usually doesn't get like how you're supposed to use like thee and thou and thy properly. This movie does. Um, people talk like, at least like people in Shakespeare plays mm-hmm. talk. Uh, I don't know how realistic that is for people of that period. But, but it's kind of like the only documentation we have and, and is they, plays from there. Yeah, and it and they don't talk like 1950s people. Yeah. Right? So I was really impressed with all of the ambition here. And Corman's doing like editing techniques and things with the way he's like cutting between people, the way that 
Helene's choice scene works where he's like doing these insert shots of everyone being like, stay, go. Um, the way that when she goes to get executed, he's like intercutting what she's doing with like shots of the sun slowly rising. And like once it's fully over the horizon, she's beheaded. There's just like a lot going mm-hmm. on here. Corman's using like real filmmaking techniques and and it just feels like a movie you know that could have been a real classic on a higher budget yeah they do i didn't really mention this but they do some neat things for livia to change into different forms with her magic basically it's like she fades into a sparkler who then fades into whatever she's turning into like typically a black cat or a quote-unquote bat which is just a reused weird alien parasite prop from uh i think it was it conquered the world yeah um but i mean like they have them lying around might as well yeah um it was like frequently done yeah um it wasn't just like okay we have the money to do it once let's do it here yeah like they've got a big cast and the cast are all unique characters who are doing real things with their like acting Mm -hmm. um you know some of the performances might come off as um maybe like flat or or not realistic but as i said earlier i think that's on purpose yeah like morality plays tend to be I don't want to say wooden. That's not quite right. But but the concern is not like, hey, what's Pendragon's like inner life like? Yeah. You know, there's also like a thing where at the, at the witch's Sabbath, uh, Satan is like, yeah, we should have music and dancing. And then like, oh, yeah, these ghouls rise up from some graves looking like a ballet troupe trained by Morticia Adams to do like some wild like 1950s contemporary dance and then they go back into their graves and it's just like a thing that happens in the movie and it's just the movie has so many like interesting weird little things like that that don't quite feel cohesive no not so much that it's just that like i i remember hearing once george lucas talk about how like there's three reasons why you put something in a movie Mm-hmm. And it's either, you know, it's here to further the plot or you put it in to illustrate something about the world and its characters or there's stuff that you put in a movie purely out of like whimsy, essentially, mm-hmm. because you're the director and you want to have something like that in your movie. Uh, Lucas's example is stormtroopers riding dewbacks, the big like lizard monsters yeah. or like having a musical number in Return of the Jedi. Like, it's just, like, (laughs) something fun that you can do. And there's examples of that whimsy here. And I think before now, Corman's movies have been very... mm, I guess the word is, like, pragmatic, almost. It's like, this scene is here because we're going to use it to get to this scene. This character needs to exist for this reason. We're very, like, point A to point B. There's no wasted effort. You know, there's nothing here that we didn't need to have here because if you put something in a movie that you don't need to have, it's going to cost you more money. And I can really see why Corman was upset that this underperformed because it's really clear that he was putting a lot of effort into this, like way more than a lot of his previous movies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've identified that Corman's the best of these bad B movie directors, but 
this still feels like something where they're really trying to do something new and interesting and different Mm -hmm. versus just like another time running around Bronson Canyon getting chased by Paul Blaisdell in a rubber suit. Yeah, I agree. Um, This is definitely, uh, as we've said, existential horror. Uh, You know, I'm not going to try to make the case that this isn't horror because like it just happens at the end. Like I think that there's horror throughout this um, and just that like the strongest part is the end with Mm -hmm. Oliger traumatized, Quintus being fucked in the past um, and Helene's sacrifice. Uh, And with Helene's sacrifice, it also reminded me of that theme of sometimes death is good Mm. that we saw from Val Luton's seventh victim. Yeah. And Helene is a character, you know, she continues Roger Corman's string of strong female protagonists, Mm -hmm. but there's also something about her sacrifice and the imagery that this movie uses with Satan and the fog and the sun that like reminded me of like Fairman Maria and like Carl Dreyer movies. And like, again, it just feels like this movie is like, kind of trying to reach up out of the B-movie quagmire for something a little more. Mm-hmm. And maybe it doesn't quite pull it off because it was shot in, a, in, a, in an empty supermarket. But, like, honestly, they do a pretty good job of, like, yeah. kind of evoking the idea that we're in a forest or we're at a cottage or whatever. Yeah, at no point did I think we were at Costco. <laughs> it's clear that it's still a Roger Corman B-movie. You know, as you say, there's a lot of characters, there's a lot of walking back and forth to locations kind of arbitrarily. (laughs) Like what we're talking about is stuff where Helene will be hiding out at Meg Maud's cottage and Pendragon will come and get her and be like, we must leave this place and flee to the tavern. And then they'll go to the tavern and Pendragon will leave Helene with the innkeeper and he'll be like, if I'm not back in an hour... Go back to Meg Mods. And it's like, well, why did why did why, why did we did come, we come here? here then? Yeah. If that's the safest place for me to be overall. Yeah. So there's there's that kind of stuff. I also think that like Allison Hayes and her medieval cocktail dress that she's in with its like thigh high slit and it's like built in um shapewear for her and everything, like and her wavy long hair. Like this is not something you're going to see in a Frank Vispar movie, but it is something you're going to see in a Roger Corman movie because he wants butts in the seats. Um, it, it feels like Roger Corman doing Seventh Seal to me is what the movie feels like. <laughs> it's just like if Seventh Seal was made by someone who knew that you have to have like TNA and like transformations and Satan and like cool shit happening because he's not like a Swedish art film director. Um, I'd almost like say that, you know, I know that this was actually an attempt to cash in on Bridie Murphy, but like I would, I would say that this is an attempt to try to do like a B movie version of seventh seal. If if it wasn't for the fact that that movie wouldn't be released in the United States until October of 1958. Mm. So it's not out yet, but this kind of hits like a same vibe. Like if you've ever watched seventh seal and wanted it to have more TNA, more TNA, more (laughs) babes in it and more beheadings. um, This might be your movie. Yeah. This movie has four whole beheadings. Uh, I really love the cast 
in this movie uh, with special shout-outs to um, Mel Wells, who plays Smolkin, the gravedigger, which is just like a really weird, unique performance, not something you'd see if this was a movie about like scientists in Bronson Canyon. Um, Dorothy Newman as Meg Maud is mm-hmm. really great. She's just like fully leaning in to the crone thing. Um, I really enjoy Richard Devon's version of Satan. In in my notes, the very first note I wrote down was that this was not the best Satan. I really like this Satan. He wasn't threatening at all. He he it it to me he might as well have just been in like a red jumpsuit with horns. Like there was nothing really selling me about this being Satan. He wasn't threatening. That's true, but. It, it's because he's like having a really good time and there's something I really like about the idea that like Satan doesn't need to be threatening here because he kind of already knows that all of these idiots are going to conspire in a way that gives him what he wants and he's just enjoying the show like it's that thing that Grant Morrison says about Superman where he doesn't always need to be like puffing out his chest with his hands on his hips because like he's the most powerful man in the world so he can just like relax and be chill and it's like that but for satan it's like satan's the most powerful evil in the universe he doesn't need to be like i'm satan he can just be like yeah this is hilarious hey quintus what's up i did enjoy how they used satan Mm. i just don't think it was the best personification Mm. i'm not saying that i needed tim curry from legend in here i'm just saying (laughs) that this could have been a little more threatening sure and then yeah i mean Listen, man, Allison Hayes, she's really hot, but I think she's really good as Livia, too. Like, Mm -hmm. given that she's an actress who has kind of been used a lot as, like, femme fatales in film noirs and B-movies and things, um, if there was one person in the cast who I would suspect of not being able to pull off the very, like, artificial dialogue, it would be her. But she does, like, just fine with it. Yeah. Yeah, she does a good job here. I'm not going to argue that she's not hot. She's she's hot. So I think if you like Corman's Poe cycle movies in the 1960s, which a lot of people see as his like artistic zenith, mm. um, you should go back and check this one out. Uh, even if you fall more on Sarah's end of things and kind of find it disappointing and lackluster, um, I still think it's like weird and different enough from the other movies he was making in this period to warrant a to warrant a, a view. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I, I don't think it's one of his better ones, but I understand where you're coming from, mm-hmm. that he's definitely trying hard here. Mm-hmm. So let's see how this ranks with uh, the other horror movies on the list. So, Sarah, I have a feeling that we're going to have some very different ranges, given <laughs> our initial very different takes on this movie. Uh, so where were you looking? Well, I... Thematically, I was thinking that the undead felt very similar to another uh, flick called Beast with a Million Eyes um, in the sense of compassion being the solve at the end. Hmm. But I was thinking like, you know, how, you know, parts of this movie really work and then parts really did not work for me Hmm. and how... I think it's a very unique movie in this time period as well. Um, 
And that got me thinking, honestly, about Curse of the Cat People. Sure. Um, that movie is really well done. It's also a case of having a lot of ambition and not fully, at least in terms of the box office return, not fully realizing its potential. So I started at 109. And I was like, well, I think Curse of the Cat People is more consistent in its horror than The Undead. So looking down, uh, this area is full of movies that were like, especially from like 114 down with like Voodoo Man or The Return of Dr. X, um, The Devil Doll. This is an area of like inconsistent horror. Mm. And I felt that as much as I felt that the undead was inconsistent, I think it still achieved like some of its goals. And therefore I have my range between 109 curse of the cat people and my floor being, um, the mad monster, which to remind you is the one where George Zuko tries, (laughs) when I say it out loud, man, uh, tries to create a, an army of werewolves to fight Nazis. Right. But that's also a movie that's like, you know, it knows what it is doing and is trying to go like in a completely different direction than what we've seen in the past with like transfusions and stuff and does some things pretty effectively. So I felt that this could go above that. Um, So that's a range of 109 to 115. So like four spots. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Um, Interesting. I see what you're saying. I'm looking significantly higher than you, which is going to make this difficult. Um, We knew this going in. So the highest ranked Corman movie we have on the list so far is It Conquered the World at number 58, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the one with Lee Van Cleef and Beverly Garland and the monster being like two feet tall with a big stalk uh, that they burned to death at the end. And as I said at the top, I thought this was the best Roger Corman we've seen so far. So I was looking entirely above this. Above this, there's movies like The Black Sleep, Dementia, The Man Without His Face, Dead of Night, The Maze, The Werewolf. Those are all like really interesting horror movies that have some flaws to them, but also some really interesting ideas. Um, And then at 41, there's The Queen of Spades, which is a real movie. Um, and I love when we describe things as real movies (laughs) and I think is definitely better than the undead simply because the undead for all of its ambition is still a movie that was made for $70,000 and looks it. Um, so my range was 42 to 47. Okay. Um, which is way higher than yours. Going back down to where you were, around 109, I see the comparison you're making with Curse of the Cat People. Um, I sort of think that for me, Curse of the Cat People is going to be a floor. Um, Below that is Yatsia Kaiden, the 1956 version, which we found to be like a perfectly adequate telling of the Yatsia Kaiden story. Mm -hmm. Also like similar with those morality vibes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the 56 Yatsia Kaiden doesn't do anything as interesting as the 1949 Yatsia Kaiden, <laughs> but it does actually manage to be a ghost story, which is why it's on the list. And the other one, which is a much better movie is not, but I think this is better. 
And I definitely think it's better than stuff like Lady and the Monster, which is the first Donovan's Brain iteration that we got. Uh, and then like Invisible Man's Revenge, the climax, which is just a like fan of the opera riff, especially better than Voodoo Man, which yeah. is fun, but not good. Yeah. Um, so with Curse of the Cat People, like as a floor looking above that, we've got the Vincent Price Invisible Man, the Invisible Man Returns, um, Corpse Vanishes with Bella Lugosi, Dark Eyes of London, which is also Bella Lugosi, Mark of the Vampires also Bella. Actually, there's a bunch of Bella Lugosi movies right here in a row. <laughs> um, I don't really know how to resolve the very wide gap between our ranges. Well, um... Right about the halfway point is... Which is Dr. Renault's secret. Isn't this... Didn't we come up against Dr. Renault's secret last week? We did. Yeah. Um, just below Dr. Renault's secret, we have movies like The Hand of Orlac, White Zombie, Invisible Ghost, Strangler of the Swamp, which I actually think is kind of comparable to this. I, I don't know if it's comparable, but I think The Undead is maybe better. Hmm. Above Dr. Renault's Secret, we have stuff like Valley of the Zombies, The Wolf of the Malviner, a bunch of movies we talked about last week. What about... Let me let me put this to you. Mm. 71 is the French 1928 Fall of the House of Usher. Right. Which is a shotgun full of all the film techniques you can absolutely possibly <laughs> do all right up into your face. If my memory serves correctly, that's like fresh out of film school guy wanting to show off, right? It was more like a film theorist. Ah, but still wanting to show off all that he can do. Mm -hmm. And comparing that approach to a horror movie with Corman's like ambitious reaching out of the grave of B movies uh, with the undead. I know you don't like Usher. I, I respect Usher. I think that it should be widely available on DVD in a way that it is currently not. I just tend to fall asleep watching it. It just <laughs> tends to lull me to sleep. Below Usher is Phantom of the Convent, which I really like. Below that is The Witch, which doesn't have a witch in it. This movie has like two to three witches in it. Scrap that. There's Satan. <laughs> yes. Uh, whereas La Bruya, the witch, is more about like a night vi- court. Yes, and a and a sort of um, cronish looking woman who takes like a potion to make her beautiful, and the society of people who live underground who who judge the damned and yeah. Um, I would be comfortable with having. Uh, the Undead, go right between these two Mexican movies. Yeah, that's sort of where I'm thinking. Below Phantom of the Convent, above The Witch. Yeah, love it. Cool. So entering the list at the new number 73, it's The Undead from 1957, directed by Roger Corman. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many, many other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. 
Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can listen to the show on any app that you choose by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review on the service that you use. That helps the show get picked up by the algorithms, which determine whether people see it and uh, check it out. Uh, If you want to bypass the algorithms, however, you can always suggest the show yourself to a friend. If you really like the show and want to show your support, you can do so financially by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to all of the amazing bonus content that we're putting out all the time, uh, cut audio from past episodes, and Sarah's gothic retrospective series are sort of our two big ongoing bonus content concerns at the moment. Concerns? So... Focuses? Sure. Priorities? So if you... You know the phrase a going concern? I've always heard it as a growing concern. No, no, those are two different things. A growing concern is Godzilla slowly approaching the city from the sea. A going concern might be like a venture that you are currently engaged in. But concern makes it sound like there's a potential for something going poorly. <laughs> Listen, maybe I'm just old and use English. I'm like older an old than person. you! Either way, if those things sound interesting to you, head over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, I sort of teased it earlier. We're watching the second half of the double feature that the undead led. It's Voodoo Woman. No relation to Voodoo Man. Maybe distant cousins. See you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.